ice to your earbuds. A podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. And I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And Greg, there was a trade. We have a trade to announce. Uh, yes, it is, uh, of course, Taylor Hall and AHL center Blake Britney Spears headed to the Arizona Coyotes for Nate Schnarr, Nick Merkley, oft injured, and junior defenseman Kevin Ball, big fella, plus two conditional draft picks, plus the Devils retain 50% of Hall's $6 million cap hit for the Coyotes to fit him in. What was your immediate reaction when you saw this deal for both the Coyotes and Los Diablos? Greg, my first thoughts on this trade was it was five for two. <laughs> uh, it was not a one for one trade. Uh, and the Devils did get a decent amount back when you look at quantity. I'm just not sure about quality. And look, I understand the caveats that other teams had when they were evaluating whether or not to bring Taylor Hall in. First off, this is a guy that has an injury history, and that's why you saw the Devils pull the plug so early. They didn't want to get into a situation where they're in January, all of a sudden Taylor Hall blows out his knee, and then what are you going to do? You get nothing for him. Teams were also hesitant of the fact that they didn't know whether Taylor Hall wanted to sign their long term. You know, his agent, I believe, was in Sweden at the time. But also Taylor has expressed some interest, and, and publicly so, of having a free agency that's somewhat like John Tavares had a couple years ago and really testing his options and seeing where he wants to play. He's never had that experience before as a player. So all of that said, the options were a little bit more limited for New Jersey. But when you look at the return, this is, according to Chris Peters, our prospect expert, the third, fourth, and sixth prospect in Arizona system. That seems really low. These are no sure things. And, you know, the number three prospect that they do get, Kevin Ball, I mean, he's definitely a riser, but is he a sure thing? Not quite yet. And, you know, I, I just look at this and I think ratio really needs to hit on that first round draft pick or this could be seen as a bust. I feel like there's a lot we don't know about this. I, I've been trying to ask a lot of people about what the actual knowledge level is when it comes to Taylor Hall, his future, July 1st, free agency, the whole thing. Everybody's been coy about it, I, including John Chaka, who, when the trade was made, was talking about at first that it was a rental. He, that was the first, the first thing, the first way he referred to Taylor Hall was as a rental. And then later on, he talked about, you know, the potential of the courtship and he'll be there for a few months and maybe it's something that we'll explore and maybe it's something he'll want and yada, yada, yada. But I mean, to me, the whole thing is about the summer. To me, he's going to go through the process. It's going to be that. I think the devils have known it for months. I think the coyotes are probably aware of it now. And that obviously affects the price tag that the coyotes are paying for Taylor Hall. Um, on top of the fact that rental, the rental market has gotten significantly smaller, I think, as far as compensation as the years have gone by under the cap. Um, so that's, that's one facet of it. Uh, the other facet of it is that the devils, and this is ironic because if you think about how Taylor Hall ended up in Jersey, it was this very, very thing. The devils had a very specific idea of what they wanted back for this trade. They wanted a couple picks, which they got, and they wanted a defensive prospect that they could you know, develop and, and put on their blue line within the next year. And Kevin Ball is, is good. I mean, like, 
not great, not blue chip, not sure thing, but he's a he's a tall drink of water, like six seven. Uh, he's apparently gotten better in the last year since his draft year. The Devils had him on their draft board; they liked him then. Um, so they they he was a passable commodity. He's not Bo Byram, and he's not you know any of the defensemen they could have gotten from Edmonton. Um, and he's not Sam Gerrard, but they they got a guy that they think that they they like in this deal that they can put on their blue line, which was the the plan for the compensation coming back for Taylor Hall. Um, the bottom line is that he wasn't going to sign in Jersey. He never was. The one thing that I think, Emily, that, that I find interesting is that a lot of people were like looking at the summer, and, and I probably was in this boat too, and I didn't realize it at the time, and saw P.K. Subban and saw Wayne Simmons and saw Nikita Gusev, and then they draft Jack Hughes, and they're all thinking, this is an enticement for Taylor Hall to stay in New Jersey. But you know what else it was? It was Columbus. It was Columbus again. It was, we probably have a year left with this guy. So let's make the most of it. And they pushed the chips in. And then the chips fell off the table. And the table collapsed. And they farted. And everybody laughed. And now they're in like last place. And they traded Taylor Hall. So that's, that's I think, probably what happened this summer more than anything else. It totally is. And Greg, I just want to talk briefly about the other teams that were possibly in on Taylor Hall. You know, the Colorado Avalanche were one of them. They were actually in Chicago this week. I caught up with them in the locker room and somebody asked Jared Bednar point blank about the trade and, and being in on Taylor Hall. He coyly uh, deferred it up to management and said that's a Joe Sackick issue. But, you know, me thinking about them bringing him in, that that feels like such a luxury for them. They've been so terrific this year. They've lost 15 players due to injuries. They have about 100 man games lost, and they're still going toe-to-toe with the St. Louis Blues for first place in the Western Conference. Imagine bringing Taylor Hall in. That would be incredible. But they didn't want to mortgage some of that capita that they've built in terms of their prospect system and draft picks. Uh, the Calgary Flames are another team that I believe were in on him. They wanted some insurance. Assurance, though. That Taylor Hall would be able to sign long term. And look, I think they have a chance because Taylor Hall does have Alberta roots, but it just didn't feel like the right fit for them right now. And there's other teams that kick the tire on him too, some like the St. Louis Blues and, and the New York Islanders. But truth be told, he ends up on the Arizona Coyotes. Now it is so much pressure on them to make the playoffs. They are going all in this year after just missing it last year with all the injuries they had, they came down to the line. They have a new owner, Alex Morello, who's not afraid to spend money. You saw that with the Phil Kessel trade. And look, I think Taylor Hall is happy to be there. I'm just not sure by some of the pictures that we saw because we knew he was a little unhappy in New Jersey. And then we see his first mugshot in Arizona and it looks like he's being held hostage. Yeah. It's, it, uh, there's been a lot of sort of hostage situation material coming out of Taylor Hall, uh, since he got with the, with the Coyotes, but that's besides the point. Um, as the game got, uh, got on, he got better and then he made the definitive play in the game, out hustled, uh, Brendan Dillon for the puck. Set up, uh, Oliver Ekman Larson for a shot that banked off of Dylan and into the net. The Coyotes win 3-2. Um, thanks in no small part to, let me put it this way. I talked about this on our video today. I think that there are certain offenses in hockey where if you do these things, in theory, you should have the charter of your franchise revoked. One of those things, in my opinion, is not scoring a goal with a six-on-three power play opportunity at the end of the game for when you've had it for, like, a minute. Like, I, 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 I know that, yeah, I know that these are all professionals 
and that includes the guys on the other side of the ice. There's a goalie who's good. There's a team that plays defense, the whole thing. I understand that. I understand power play percentages as well. I'm not a mathematician, but I understand math. That said, if you don't score in a six-on-three power play to tie the game, you should have your trotter revoked. <laughs> it should be a 30-team league now, and the Sharks should no longer exist because they couldn't score a goal with those players on the ice. Burns, Carlson, Kater, Kane. No, they, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. They're Thanos snapped. Let's talk about another Disney property. They're gone. Six-on-three power play, you can't score in it? Forget it. You know, the, 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 the name can be applied to a professional lacrosse team that moves in to take the dates in the arena because the Sharks don't exist anymore. And I will gladly bid on the, on the Shark head when it goes to auction. Back on the Coyotes. So Taylor Hall made a great play, game-winning goal, and I thought it was brilliant because, like, as Rick Tockett said after the game, that's exactly why we got him. How, how exhilarating must it be for John Chaka, friend of the program, to be like, look what I did. I made this trade and look what he did. He did the thing that I told everybody he could do. It's like proof in advertising. So let's talk about the Coyotes. What does this mean for them? We all know they were around 23rd, 24th in offense and shooting percentage before the trade. Is this the over the hump move or are there still some questions about whether or not the Coyotes will inevitably be a playoff team? Yeah, the reason the Coyotes are in the position they're in right now, it's not because of their offense. It's not because of Phil Kessel coming in, even though they thought that would be the case. This is a team that didn't have a 20-goal score. The only team without a 20-goal score last year, they thought Phil Kessel would come in and be that guy. He probably will hit 20 goals. He just won't hit 30. They thought he would improve the power play. He hasn't quite done that yet. But really why they're here is because of absolutely terrific goaltending. Their one-two punch of Darcy Kemper and Antti Ranta is probably the best in the league right now. I think they can be a playoff team, and I think that the addition of Taylor Hall will help them a lot because he's going to be himself, and he's playing all out at a contract year for himself. He wants to get paid this summer, and he wants to wipe away any concern from any other teams that he's worth a max deal. But moreover, he can go and improve all that cluster of 20-somethings on that roster that are on the verge of breaking out. I'm talking about the Christian Dvorak's of the world, the Nick Schmaltz's, the Vinny Henestrosa. I mean, look at Nick Schmaltz, for example. When he was in Chicago, he played so well when he was alongside Patrick Kane, and they were teamed up together. I think Taylor Hall will bring out the best of those guys. If they start to play with a super skilled player, we'll see the best of them. And, you know, maybe that means that they will be a playoff team. Yeah, for sure. And what do we say of the Devils? Um, this is a disastrous season. I, you know, Ray Shiro's had like five years at this. Um, the first draft apparently wasn't his fault. Subsequent drafts, he had some easy slam dunks and f- picking first overall. Um, but they haven't necessarily produced a bounty beyond that um, in, in some cases. Their development of prospects, I think, is specious. And now, if you really take a critical look at the roster, you're looking at, like, 2022 before this team gets competitive again. Um, is this a, is this a, re, is this a re, is, is rebuild 2.0 for the Devils? You know, 
I still think that the devil should be in rebuild mode. I feel like whatever they did the last couple months with a blip. And if you listen to Ray Shiro talk, he says when they won the number one pick to the lottery and the right to draft Jack Hughes, that accelerated their timeline for a Stanley Cup window. But I really feel like that was just putting a lot of band-aids on a roster that had a ton of blemishes. Truth be told, they've had a lot of prospects that have not developed to the way they should. A lot of prospects who have almost regressed at the NHL level. I'm looking at guys like Damon Severson as, you know, a prime example here. And they just don't have the depth right now. It's not just goaltending. Look, goaltending is a huge chief concern for them. They've got to address that. But they're just not ready to win right now. So, yeah, I do think that they are re-entering a rebuild. And, and we can kind of look at these couple months as a flash in the pan. But it really wasn't who they were. Anyways, big trade. Very excited for the Coyotes. The Pacific is an odd place, which we'll talk about uh, after we uh, speak to our guest. Rob Paulson is a voice actor who's been working since the early 1980s. You have heard his voice on, God, everything, pretty much. <laughs> Go to IMDb, look up his name. Uh, Raphael from the Ninja Turtles. He was on Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. He was on Animaniacs. He did Pinky. He did all this stuff. And on top of that, he once skated with Gordie Howe. United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Haiti, Jamaica, Peru, Republic, Dominican, Cuba, Caribbean, Greenland, El Salvador, too. Oh, I know, Blaine. How about this one? Oh, hey, you. Oh, this is my voice. Ah. Did he say brain drain? Don't sweat it, Michelangelo. You don't have that much to lose. Rob Paulson is one of the most accomplished voice actors in the business. The man behind Yakko Warner on Animaniacs, Pinky from Pinky the Brain, Raphael from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, among others. But his first love was hockey, listening to Bud Lynch on the radio during Detroit Red Wings games, playing it a little bit himself. Rob, let's start with a story that I heard you tell once that I think is just absolutely fascinating. Not only did you play hockey with Gordy Howe, but Gordy Howe who knew who the Ninja Turtles were. How about that? Firstly, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me, Greg. I appreciate it. <clears throat> yeah, Bruce Martin and Bud Lynch on uh, WJR Radio. That was a big deal. WFJ Radio, excuse me, in Detroit. Um, son of Motown here. Uh, yeah, I um, uh, had been playing. I played hockey my whole life as a kid, my young life as a kid. Came out here in the late 70s and uh, in, a, in sometime in the mid-80s, got hooked up with a group of actors who were from various hockey playing areas around the country and, uh, you know, went around and banged each other up and stuff. And <laughs> turned out that we got to, uh, have a, a little bit more of a, of a cohesive group of guys and got to go around playing the old times of national hockey league teams to raise money for charities. And of course, uh, this was a Ninja Turtles really exploded. And, uh, lo and behold, we pull into the Joe and there's the great man standing there. And one thing leads to another and goes, Oh, wait a minute. Are you the Ninja Turtle guy? And I said, I am Mr. Hockey. And he said, Jesus, my grandkids love your show. And, I, of course, I thought, oh, my God, Gordie Howe knows who Raphael is. I, I, I flipped out, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, we got to practice, and then we played the game at the Joe. My parents were there. I'm standing at the, in the center ice on the wing, the winged wheel. Uh, I was on a line with Alan Thicke and Danny Gare, who used to play for the, uh, the Sabres and the Wings, oh, yeah. I believe one other NHL franchise. And opposite me, as I'm a left wing, opposite me is Gord. At center is Alex Del Vecchio. And to his left is Ted Lindsay. And I couldn't pinch myself because I had my equipment on. I was just going, man, this is crazy. Puck drops, and surprise, Alex wins the faceoff. 
no offense, Alan, you're a good center, but you're not Alex. And um, uh, shoot the puck into our zone. I go to, you know, set up. Gordy trips me, sits on me, puts his turtle, uh, puts his stick across my chest and says, you, you know what, you fucking turtles aren't so tough. And it was like, oh, my God, this, please cut me, Gord. Cut me just five or six stitches right here. I was in utter heaven. I don't know that it could get any better for a young hockey player from Detroit than to have Mr. Hockey sit on your chest and denigrate you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's right. perfect. It's like having Nolan Ryan throughout, throughout your head at a baseball fantasy Right, game. exactly. Like or, or Denny McClain, you know, throw the high heater and say, I have one, one left in me from the 1968 right. World Series. It's coming right at your noggin, son. <laughs> and, oh, my God, it was the coolest thing in the world. And to this day, I, talking about it now, you know, decades later, it is never not uh, a miraculous thing in my life. So, uh, yeah, Mr. Hockey, indeed. What have the Red Wings meant for you? I mean, obviously, when you're a kid, you know, I know you're all about the hockey. You know, the Red Wings are your team. Through the years, though, I mean, ha- have you all been super fan guy? Have you ebbed and flowed? What, what have they meant to you through the years? Well, yes, I am a super fan guy. I, I believe, especially now as I get older, and I was just back in Detroit a month ago giving a TED Talk, and I don't know how many of your fans uh, and your listeners uh, get to go to Detroit, but Detroit and, and the uh, town in which I grew up for high school, just south of Flint, those two cities have really taken a pounding. And um, I think like any other city, you know, they have, they, as you mentioned, ebb and flow, but the Red Wings uh, <laughs> and the Lions, God bless them, um, <laughs> seem to uh, kind of have that, that spirit, that sort of undeniable human spirit that Detroit and Flint um, represent. And by that, I mean, yeah, I was a, a Red Wings fan from the time I could breathe and, and listen to the radio. Um, and, uh, yeah, with them through the, the, the darkness of Harkness and um, the uh, when they were called the dead things um, until they drafted that uh, that good player from out west. Uh, I forget, last name with a Y, and now he's the GM. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, they sucked for many years after they got a hold of Steve. But, boy, oh, boy, what a remarkable experience to grow up and uh you know, to really become a fan, probably in the mid '60s, and then see what happened uh, during the '80s, and then they get all the Stevie. One thing leads to another, and become, if not a dynasty, pretty damn close. Uh, Twenty-five straight years in the playoffs, uh, back-to-back cups, um, the Russian Five. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but it's That's fascinating. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Oh my God, it's just it's James Bond meets the NHL. It's incredible <laughs> to see how they. How uh, Jimmy uh, Devolano and and um, Kenny Holland and you know Mike Illich and all those guys got got the guys over here, um, but I'm telling you, uh, uh, of course, because we have YouTube now, and as you know, Greg, when when those five boys were on the ice, it was keep away. I mean, it was just that simple. When I would go out and, and you know here in L.A., there was a period of time when getting Kings tickets was not a problem. <laughs> and uh, so every time the Wings would come to town and and um, they you know. Eiserman would get tired, he'd go off the ice, and Fedorov would step off. Then, uh, uh, you know, Brendan Shannon would get tired, he'd step off the ice, and Konstantinov would step off. I mean, it was just, it was crazy, and it was it was shinny, and it was keep away, and it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life as a, as a hockey fan. Um, and the proof is in the pudding. So, yeah, Detroit um, and the Red Wings uh, have meant a lot to me, uh, because I'm I'm a Detroiter at heart. I live in L.A., and I've been here for 40 years, but 
um, uh, on Pure Michigan, as they say. And to see the way the city has bounced back and the spirit of Detroit. Um, I was there, as I said, a couple weeks ago, but uh, in my chat with uh, folks on the, at the Red Wings doing a nice little interview, I, I made it a point to say, look, you guys, you're talking to an old Red Wings fan. They're going to come back. Don't freak out. This is Detroit. If these guys can come back from looking like a bombed-out city to what it looks like at the riverfront now, give them, give them some time. This is just a hockey game. This is not rebuilding a city. And uh, so I'm pretty proud of the whole, the whole circumstance back there. And God bless Mr. Illich. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned those celebrity games. I always, always enjoyed watching clips from those games. I was wondering, in your time playing in those celebrity games in, in L.A. And, and on the road with those guys and whatever, who's who's a, who's someone that had a bit more skill than you thought they'd have? Who, who surprised you? Who who was who was the gamer amongst the uh, the celebs there, in, in those games? There were a couple of good players. Um, Chris Potter, who um, I forgot the he was. Uh, Silk Stockings. He was, I think, the second oh, yeah. lead. USA Network, yeah, maybe. Characters welcome. Right. <laughs> right. And Chris is a good guy, great player, um, uh, Canadian, uh, very good player. Uh, my buddy David Couillet, another four, um, Detroiter, good player. Um, and, of course, every now and then we'd pepper our team with uh, a couple of ringers. We played the uh, U.S. Olympic, the 1980 U.S. Olympic team once at in those days, it was called the Dallas Reunion Arena. Oh, yeah. And uh, that was pretty cool because we'd get to have, you know, on our team, we'd have Eric Strobel and Mike Ruzioni. And I remember I was playing defense because I was one of our guys who could skate backwards. And uh, <laughs> Jim, Jim Craig was playing goal, and I'm playing defense with, get this, Brad Park. So um, we had a couple of guys on the other side that were uh, – uh, Philly, you know, old Philly players. It was Reggie Leach and I think Bob Kelly. And these guys, every now and then, we asked them, you know, because we never get this chance. We're, we're I was, I, I got as far as junior B, and I was, that was it. Um, but when you're out there and you want, you, some of these guys have only been out of the league for a couple of years, you know. And so every now and then, you say, look, don't hurt me, but just turn it up. I just want to see what it's like down here when you guys go after it. Right. And let me tell you something, man. It's nuts. And I'm playing uh, defense and starting to skate backwards. I look it over and there's Brad Park, you know, basically just kind of whistling and having a good time. And Jim Craig, as, as Reggie Leach is coming down on me, Jim, Jim Craig says, stand him up, Robbie, stand him up, stop him, stop him. And I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? I'm getting out of the way. And he let one rip. I mean, Reggie Leach, as some of you guys may remember, as a 50, 60 goal scorer in the 70s. Yeah. He let one rip. I, I've never seen anything like that in my life. It, it had movement on it. I mean, it was like, it was like a Hoyt Wilhelm knuckleball at 100 miles an hour. And it moved <laughs> yeah. all over the place. But Jimmy just grabbed it. But it was just this little taste of what it's like with the big boys. And I, it's, it's terrifyingly inspirational. At the same time, you're going, oh, my God, these guys are going to kill me. And they're 10 years removed from the league, and they yeah. could kill me. And yet it's so remarkable to see that it's a privilege to be down there with those big boys, you know? Yeah, um, and one of the, you know, yeah, it's funny. It's one, oh, one of the by criticisms. Richard Dean Anderson, too. Rick Anderson was a good player, another Minnesota boy, good player. One of the criticisms writers always get sometimes are people that start levying the uh, you never played the game criticism against writers, right? And I always oh, say, yeah. but none of us have played the game. Like none the, of us the, the NHL level of the game is something that none of us, unless we, we are that good and that talented and made yeah. that show, can conceive 
how hard the shots are, how fast those guys are, how physical those guys are. It's a completely yeah. different plane of existence. Well, and that's you're absolutely right on the money, and that's why you're a writer. Uh, you uh, you <laughs> are able to convey that and and say that in a way that is much more poetic and 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 interesting than I. But well, I'm it's also you, it's I'm also a writer because I can't play. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> but you know, listen, play with a small p. You know, like the right. same thing with golf. I'm a good right. enough golfer to know how good I'm not. I, it, <laughs> when I when I have a really slow time in my career and I'm and I'm playing way too much golf, which means I got no money, but my handicap is low. Mm-hmm. Um, if I play out of my mind, I can you know shoot seventy five, seventy six on a muni. Right. But that's if I'm playing every day. And the lowest I've ever gotten was a four. That's great golf for me. For you, but man, right. every now and then I'll, I'll play with some kid who's a who's the third or fourth player on the UCLA team. Are you kidding me? These <laughs> kids all can bomb at three twenty, and they all putt like crazy. And most of them don't have the the, the talent to make a dime on a mini tour. And right. you go, okay, I, I get how good these guys are. Same thing with hockey players or, or baseball players. I mean, the reason I love hockey is because it 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 really um, combines so many assets so many physical assets endurance strength brains speed sight um and and it is a remarkable thing to be down there with players uh who are even when they're you know five ten years removed we played the calgary flames old-timers and i got to play with jim poplinski and lanny mcdonald and guichon all these guys who are literally two ways away two years after the stanley cup Mm -hmm. and i remember just standing at practice with lanny mcdonald a half a dozen pucks and uh, and I said, look, I just got to do this because I'm a fan and I don't get, you know, nobody gets this chance. This is a privilege. Pick a corner, Lanny goes, okay, how are upper left? Boom, ding, from, the, from center ice, from 85 <laughs> feet out. Middle of the crossbar, ding, middle of the net, ding. And, and they're all like that. Yeah. And so now when you see all these kids who, um, I grew up in Flint, as I mentioned, and they, um, they have an OHL team, the Flint Firebirds, and I watch their videos. These kids are great players, 16, 17, 18 years old. And maybe two of them got what it, has what it takes to make it for a little while in the bigs. Maybe. Right. It's just they're so good now. And God forgive me. And God forgive me, Gord. But when I look at the old uh, videos of, of my Red Wings, uh, not so much, obviously, the 80s and 90s, but the 60s and 70s guys. All the people who were, you know, Frank Mahabish, Alex Del Vecchio, Gordy Howe, Ted Lindsay, the guys who were bigger than life. Um, in, in, in terms of speed, I, I got to tell you, there's no comparison. The kids today all can skate like the wind. They're all in perfect shape. You know, they, they all take care of themselves. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, they all work out every day on the off season. Most of the guys in the NHL sold cars in their off seasons in the sixties <laughs> and fifties, you know? They had to make a living. That's um true. Gordy never made more than two hundred large as a Red Wing. And nobody, no rookie, plays for two hundred large anymore, you know? Yeah. So um it was a, a remarkable thing to to be able to be down on the ice with those guys to be sure and and uh God, what a privilege. And the nicest people uh, and I have to tell you also, as a result of my, my deep love and admiration for Gordie Howe, every single player of that era had a story about Gordie because yeah. they were all as big a fan as you and I are, Greg. And yeah. I remember playing a charity game. Alan Thicke's uh, son, Robin, 
uh, I believe, had juvenile diabetes, and um, we played in a uh, charity game to benefit that particular charity in London, uh, not far from where Alan Thick grew up. And I remember we it was in the summer, so I'm out there with Louis DeBrusque, and, uh, whose son Jake plays in the NHL now, and Brendan Shanahan, and we're skating around, and then Gordy comes out on the ice. And I am telling you, ladies and gentlemen, those big, badass, professional, million-dollar, whatever, multi-zillion-dollar hockey players mm. – immediately turned into little kids and i asked i asked brendan i said so this is as cool for you as it is for me he said oh no that's that's gordy how dude and and that and it was like saying that's the pope but it was so wonderful to see how these really tough guys had utter reverence for gordy but so did phil esposito so did brad park so did bobby Orr. every time i got to meet one of those guys john mckenzie um Ken Dryden, Keith Magnuson, rest his soul. All these people whom I got to meet playing hockey, you know, playing hockey with my hockey cards come to life. Whenever Gordy was mentioned or he was in, you know, part of the equation or came to the event, they were really very reverential. In fact, even Phil Esposito had a story where he said, because uh, he came into the league with the Chicago Blackhawks and he grew up in the Sioux, you know, up at the, the northern Michigan, Ontario border. And he said, uh, uh, my Gordy House story is uh, my first time playing Gordy at the Olympia. I was, I don't know, 21 years old, and I told all my teammates, hey, I'm going to ask for Mr. Howe for a hockey stick afterwards. And, and so, uh, but he said I was playing center, and Alex had gotten waved off the, out of the face-off circle. So uh, Gordy came in to take the face-off, puck drops, and Gordy hits me right in the face with a stick. Broke my nose. And uh, I said, I'm skating to the, you know, the bench. Gordy got two minutes, whatever. I'm skating to the bench. <laughs> and Phil screams out. He goes, F you, Gordy. You used to be my hero. <laughs> I just, That's fantastic. I love stuff like that. You know, it's like Philip Pizzino is willing to talk to you about how happily broken his nose was because he got to tell Gordy you're my hero. But now, you know, they, they hug each other and they have beers and they swap these stories. And to be a human fly on that wall, Greg, oh, my God, it was yeah. Awesome. It was unbelievable. All right, let me ask you a couple career things here. Um, where do your voices come from? I mean, like, I think back to like your first big gig as No Job in the old G.I. Joe cartoon oh my I used God. to watch as a kid. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Uh, Thanks, you go bud. from that to Pinky to, to all these voices. Are you, as a writer, I, I'm constantly thinking about other writers and sometimes I approach a story in, in maybe someone else's voice sometimes just to get the tone mm-hmm. right. Do you, are you, where are you pulling voices from? Are they from people in your life? Are they, are they just things that you conjure up magically? How do, they, how do you get to them? Um, I wish I could say that it was something like that magical and really very, very mysterious, but I, I'm an actor. I, I think I have, um, I think I had a natural affinity and, uh, for picking up dialects and I have a pretty good ear. I was a singer first. So, um, there is a certain musicality to creating voices so i think it was sort of a natural thing for me but as a kid i was always fascinated by guys like the obvious you know the usual suspects jonathan winters um mm-hmm. red skelton um i know we're talking way back there but i'm 62 no. years old so I've, yeah. I've been around um but victor borga and my grandparents were both danish so victor borga's dialect was easy for me to grab and even though i didn't use them i i had this facility to cultivate them but i think moreover is I have a fearlessness. And, and I don't mean that in like, I'm going to stand in front of a train. I don't care if people think I'm a complete idiot. I, I, that's what I do for a living. I, I, I've never been afraid to be a complete goofball, which in real life is not necessarily a good thing. And my, my wife could attest to that. However, in this realm, uh, making a living as an actor or more particularly a voice guy, it's exactly 
what we need. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the idea is once you step into the booth at Disney or Warner Brothers or Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or wherever, that you don't behave like anything in particular except the talking lab mouse who's bent on world domination, whatever the hell that means. Um, and so uh, with respect to Snow Job, and thank you for bringing that up, because that was actually the first cartoon I ever did with G.I. Yeah. Transformers. And, and uh, the, <clears throat> uh, the breakdown was that, okay, this guy is a, a soldier. He's an alpine soldier, and we think he's probably from the northeast. You know? He's a, he's a uh, bean towner. And um, I have no problem with that particular dialect. I had a lot of hockey-playing fans from up there in North Kingstown, Rhode Island, and a lot of, you know, shoot the puck and love Bobby Orr, number four. So I had um, no problem sliding into that, and one thing led to another. I said, "Hey, not bad. Yeah, yeah. You want to do this? You want to do this other show called uh, Transformers?" And I said, "Sure. What's that about?" I go, ah, these crazy machines that transform in and out of cars and trucks, and you're going to do something called an aerobot, where you, tr- you know, your character t- turns into like a jet, and you, this guy's called Slingshot, and this guy's called Air Raid, and and off you go. And I'll be damned." 25, 30 years later, uh, I get calls from, um, you know, super fans of Transformers and G.I. Joe inviting me to all these events. And I'm like, dude, I did like five episodes. Of, yeah, but man, you were slingshot. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's just, it's so cool yeah. to find sweet people like you. And, and, you know, this is not hyperbole, man. Millions of others who have found that these characters affect them in a profoundly deep way. And to go from that, and by the way, what happened was I was doing live action and music and, um, and got the opportunity to audition for cartoons. I didn't come out here to do that. I came out here to do the traditional stuff, but when the the opportunity presented itself, uh, man, this is the gig. Nobody cares what I look like. Everybody, when you're a non-celebrity is limited at least at the beginning of a process and, and a, a, an audition process by how you look. Mm. And I'm fine with that. That's the way it goes. But man, with cartoons, it's not about that at all. It's about your talent and your, um, and the kindness of people that hire you. So I said, man, let me do more of this. And then one thing led to another and it was all the Disney afternoon stuff with dark duck and mm-hmm. gummy bears and goof troop and, um, rescue rangers and ducktails and all that. And then it was um, the Warner Brothers stuff, uh, Tiny Toons and Tasmania and Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and um, Freakazoid. And then, you know, slide over to Nickelodeon, Jimmy Neutron and Fairly Odd Parents and, and Ninja Turtles again, 25 years after the initial Raphael, in which, you know, nobody knew it would end up being utterly iconic. Uh, the fact that nobody cared what I looked like came to uh, help me out again 25 years later, and I got, <laughs> got to be Donatello for another 120 yeah. episodes. So, uh, And now we're back doing Animaniacs and Pinky in the Brain again Crazy. with Mr. Spielberg precisely because the fan base is exponentially larger than it was when the show aired initially. And it people love Animaniacs and Pinky in the Brain. And, and with a capital L, I mean, yeah. I... I have Marines who will come up to see Maurice LaMarche, who's the brain and I at these events, and they'll start to cry um, when I'll say, hey, God, you're a big one, aren't you? Nice to see you. And um, they they do what you're doing now, but they'll start to get a little bit tearful, and I'll say, geez, I'm so sorry, buddy. He said, nah, Mr. Paulson, you don't understand, man. I, 
I did three tours in Iraq, and, uh, you know, I got on patrol, and, of course, their job is to kill people and not be killed themselves. And then they get back, and they tell me stories about how their DVDs of Pinky the Brain or Animaniacs or G.I. Joe or The Simpsons or SpongeBob or whatever, The Office, you know, something that takes them and, and lets them decompress with a couple of beers before they got to go out and do that again. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea, no idea how important these shows are, much bigger than an action figure, much bigger than a paycheck. And uh, I'm pretty proud to be able to do this gig. It's, um, it's a remarkable thing to watch grown people of two or three generations freak out when Raphael starts riffing, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, one last one about, uh, about the career here. Your IMDb, IMDb page is fascinating. It's like it's like walking through three decades of Toys R Us, right? Like, like all the properties that <laughs> you've been heard, a part of. I've never heard that description. I'm going to steal that. Thank you, buddy. I'll give you credit. Means, but I love that. By all means, uh, give me give me one thing you worked on that surprised you by how big it got, and give me one thing you worked on that surprised you that it it didn't hit. Because you had the Ninja Turtles, so that's a major, you know, generational success. You, Animaniacs, same deal. Pinky the Brain, same deal. Yeah. I gotta imagine there are some things where you did it and you're like, ah, this is a, this is a one and done deal. And then all of a sudden it becomes a gig. And there are probably other things that you did that you're like, wow, this is gonna be the next three years of my life. And then all of a sudden the toy yeah. line ends or the the show's canceled after no. one season. And and that's right. You na- and you nailed it. I, I, that's what's so special. Just as a, as a quick side note, that's what's so special about Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs. Those are two shows that were, um, to coin that old hackneyed phrase, art for art's sake. That is to say, uh, look, you're talking to two, 50% of the Ninja Turtles and one old guy from Detroit, right? So <laughs> I know about action figures. And that show has generated $6 billion, with a B in merchandise. Um, but Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain have relatively little swag. T-shirts every now and then. There will probably be more because of it coming back next year on Hulu. But those shows are being rebooted um, precisely because they're great shows. They're beautifully written. They're funny. The music is astonishing. I mean, I got to sing all the countries of the world. and Incredible music. 40-piece orchestra, obviously as a result of Mr. Spielberg. But um, so I'm, I'm very proud of those shows because it's not about merchandise. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in terms of your question, um, the show that surprised me now, and more specifically, the character that surprises me uh, in terms of <laughs> how people continue to embrace it, is uh, I did a show called Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. Oh, yeah. And um, I was a little fat guy named Carl, who is this kind of chubby guy that wears glasses and has a lazy L and sort of needs his own inhaler. And people flip out over that guy. I don't understand it. Um, the show's been off the air for 10 years or whatever. And I don't know that they're coming back. But, hey, this is Reboot Mania. But, man, when I, I had some guys uh, just this morning out here in, in the Gray Hills putting some Christmas tree lights up in my oak trees. And the, uh, <laughs> the guy who's the head of the, the group here, the boss man, said, hey, I, I heard you do cartoon voices. Anything we'd know? And I said, well, maybe if you've had a TV over the last 30 years. I'm kind of a smart ass, you know. And one of them said, you, you did Jimmy Neutron? I said, yeah, it was Carl. And the, I swear to God, the blood drained out of a kid's face. I mean, he, he kind of, <laughs> he, he was just this side of passing out. And I, I'm, are you okay, buddy? I mean, it was, 
and that's the character that surprises me in terms of how it's affected people. There was a show, though, in terms of, of one that I thought was going to make it, very smart. It was a show I did with Pam Adlon and um, uh, whom you guys know as Bobby from uh, Bobby Hill from King of the Hill. And also she's uh, the star of her own FX show called uh, uh, Better Better Things Things. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Mark Hamill, whom you guys know as the savior of the universe. Um, (laughs) And by the way, you also know him as the Joker. He was the Joker for 20 years on Batman the Animated Series. And there are many people uh, my son's age, who's 35. and, And he's like, look, I love. Batman, Chris Bale, Chris Nolan, I love all that, all the different iterations. But man, if I was on a desert island and I was, you know, I had to be with my Batman for the next 20 years, it would be Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill. That's that's Batman and the Joker, respectively, to a lot of people. Um, but uh, we did a show called Time Squad that was kind of a new hybrid um, Sherman and Peabody, you know, uh, um, yeah. his, historical Rocky thing. Yeah. yeah, and it was great. It was... Uh, I played a character called Buck Todd Russell, who's kind of a intergalactic cop, and I lowered my voice like this, and the night to mess with it and make it even lower. Because if you look at me in real life, I don't cut up very imposing swath. I'm about uh, five nine and a half and a buck forty five, you know. <laughs> so, um, but that was a really funny show, and it lasted one season. And we really all thought, you know, Pam was working on King of the Hill. I was working on. Um, Animaniacs, Mark was doing Batman, and we thought, oh, this is great, man. We're going to have another one right up here with, you know, four or five years worth of work. Mm-hmm. After one season, crickets. Uh, you know, that's the way it goes. Um, but the thing that's really wonderful now is to be in a position that I can still do my gig. I do it every day. Uh, I get to talk to really lovely people like you. And as a result of the the ubiquity of these conventions that are springing up like zits on a 12-year-old, man, I... I have these opportunities to meet people all over the world and I can do this gig till I die. I got to work with Mel Blanc once, uh, Mm. before he, uh, obviously before he passed away, but he was probably 77, 78. Mm. And, uh, I remember we were working on the Jetsons project at Hanna-Barbera and the director, uh, Gordon Hunt, who was Helen Hunt's father and directed all the cartoons over there at Hanna-Barbera. And he said, Hey Robbie, uh, Mel's here today. You want to sit next to him? I said, of course. So I sit next to Mr. Blank, and I remember mustering up the courage to say, uh, Mr. Blank, like everybody with a pulse, I'm a big fan. Um, if it's not too much trouble, and of course, he knew exactly what I wanted. And he looked at me and he said, what's up, Doc? And I promise you, Craig, it, it was, I mean, it was like this young man I just mentioned to you about with respect to Carl. I, I almost passed out. It was the coolest thing in the world to hear bugs come out of this sweet old guy's head, you know? Um, and he's got me beat by another 15 years. So I think I can still do this gig as long as people are nice enough to hire me. But, uh, it is a privilege to be sure to be able to make a living doing something I would essentially get in trouble for in seventh grade. Um, (laughs) and to do it at this level for a long time and now have people interested in what I have to say is, uh, is a real thrill. And I, I, I got to leave you with one sports anecdote um, with respect to Mr. Hockey, because it, it speaks to how lucky all of us are. You, me, Mitch album, people who make their living, you know, writing about sports, playing sports. And we're all essentially entertainers. And to, to be able to make a living and buy dog food and toilet paper and dental floss and gas and cars with something that nobody put a gun to our head to do. 
I know no one whose parents forced them to be an actor or a professional baseball player. You know, it's, it's pretty rare. You, you want to do this gig. And I remember um, uh, sitting at a, a fundraiser with Gordy and Colleen Howe. They were very nice to me, and, and they, they treated me like family, both Mr. and Mrs. Howe. And I was playing at a celebrity um, softball game in Vancouver in the summer uh, at, at the invite, uh, invited by Mr. and Mrs. Hockey. Um, and part of it was an autograph session. I was signing Ninja Turtle stuff, and Gordy was signing everything that wasn't nailed down. And he went from being my idol, my on-ice idol, to my hero in five seconds in the following way. Uh, I'm sitting there signing stuff next to Gordy, and a young man about my age walked up after an hour and a half in line and said, uh, here's my puck, Mr. Howe, and Gordy signed it. And the young man said, thank you so much, Mr. Howe. And Gordy put down that Sharpie, Greg, and looked at that young man and said, not at all, son, I've worked too hard for this privilege. Now, mm -hmm. Gordy said that at 65 years old, when he'd literally signed a million autographs in his lifetime. And even then, he still had the humility of a farm boy from Floral, Saskatchewan. Yeah. And in that moment, I got to see how if you cultivate anything resembling celebrity in something that you do as a labor of love, that's how you move through your life. So to this day, and it's rare, I have to tell you, but to this day, when I run into somebody who doesn't behave that way and they fancy themselves, you know, that, that they're pretty hot stuff, man, it takes about two seconds for me to just blow them off because I've seen how Mr. Spielberg walks through his life. I've seen how Gordy Howe moved his life. And for people who could behave any way they want to behave and they choose to behave like that is a remarkable thing. And I'm a better human for having had uh, Mr. Hockey in my life. So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to chat about it. Absolutely, man. Rob, you're the best. Thank you so much for your time. So you got the Animaniacs and uh, uh, Tiny Toons, you said, reboots coming up, I think you said, right? Uh, what else do you have uh, No, up? Pinky and the Brain. Oh, Pinky and the Brain. I'm sorry. What else do you have coming That's up? That's okay. Uh, you get a free ticket to the water tower. All you and your listeners, just show up on next Wednesday, and you can all march up to the water tower. No problem. <laughs> Perfect stuff, man. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for your time. We so much appreciate it, and uh, thanks for all that you do. My pleasure, buddy. Go Red Wings. Thanks. My thanks to Rob Paulson. It was a fabulous conversation with this man. I wanted to talk to him for a long time. The book he's got out is called Voice Lessons, How a Couple of Ninja Turtles, Pinky, and an Animaniac Saved My Life. It's a uh, very interesting look at uh, his actual his battle with cancer and uh, his career and lessons he learned along the way, working with kids, the whole thing. Um, it's good stuff. And uh, do check it out. And thanks for Rob for his time today. All right. Now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel's Hot Dogs. It is the moment each podcast where we take a look at the hockey media. It's hyperbole, it's foibles, it's mistakes. Steve Conroy is a writer for the Boston Herald. He had an epic Taylor Hall take this week, Emily. Quote, Hall won an MVP... But the Oilers won one more playoff series with Larson. Was it really a steal for Jersey? The bigger mistake was Eberly for Strom. Now, Eberly for Strom was a bad trade. But you traded a hard trophy winner for a functional defenseman. 
And and so like it's not Taylor Hall's fault. The Devils have been kind of disastrous during his tenure. One might say Taylor Hall is so good that the only time the Devils made the playoffs in his tenure was because he scored like twenty five points in his last like eight, three games <laughs> to get him into the playoffs, and they won the Hart Trophy for it. So there you go. Oilers won the Hall Larson trade because the Oilers won one more playoff series. With Larson, damn the Devils did with Hall. Makes total sense, right? All right. Good stuff out of Boston, as per usual. Now it's time for Puck Headlines. Dateline, Team USA. Aaron Franklin, I'm sorry, Frankel. I did the the same thing last night when I was watching it. Aaron Frankel was brilliant in making 27 saves in her U.S. Women's National Team debut to beat Canada 2-1 and give the U.S. of A a 2-0 lead in the Barnstorm and Rivalry Series between these two teams. It was a fun game last night. Now, made more fun because I was slipping back and forth between the game on NHL Network and the Four Weddings Marathon on TLC. But a fun game nonetheless for Team USA. Greg, I've got to say, the goaltending situation for Team USA looks so bright for the future. Like, we thought there was, you know, going to be some kind of controversy between Alex Rigsby. She's now Alex Rigsby Cavallini. She got married and Maddie Rooney going forward. But now we've got Erin Frankel bursting onto the scene. She's a 99 if you want to feel old. She's just 20 years old. But it looks pretty good. And I've got to say, the player that impressed me the most in these first two games for USA is Alex Carpenter. She really has turned things on lately. Um, it was kind of painful to listen to that game with the TSN broadcast because it became a uh, Philippe Poulin uh, podcast, basically, the entire uh, time. Just, you know, do you remember when she cured those lepers? You know, that kind of level of, of love and adulation. She's great. She's fantastic. She gave me much misery as an American through the years. But, sure. Dateline, Ilya Kovalchuk. The Russian sniper has been released by the LA Kings after a disastrous return to the National Hockey League. Emily, if you were going to fantasy cast the next uh, destination for Ilya Kovalchuk, where would you like to see him play? Greg, do you know where I want to see Ilya Kovalchuk play? And I know this probably isn't a popular answer because they are the defending Stanley Cup champs, but I'd love to see him in St. Louis. They have that Vladimir Tarasenko cap money that they can spend. And do you know the real reason I want to see him there is that I know that the Washington Capitals are angling for a game to play in Moscow next year. And one of the good opponents that, that would match up nicely for them would be the St. Louis Blues. How cool would it be to see Kovalchuk and Tarasenko go out there and play Ovechkin next year? I've always kind of wished to see Ilya Kovalchuk and Alex Ovechkin on the same team. And that'd be kind of fun, especially on the same power play. I, I would dig that. But it's not going to... I don't think they need him. Uh, Dateline, uh, here comes the, the crappy news of the day, uh, the next two entries. Dateline Flyers, Oscar Lindblom has been diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, a form of bone cancer. This led to some very, very inspirational sights from the Flyers game this week, uh, with Oscar Strong signs. There is a, a fan campaign to maybe get him named to the All-Star game as well. I don't know where the steam is on that quite yet. Um, but uh, really sad news, uh, leading goal scorer for the Flyers when he was diagnosed 
um, and expected to miss uh, potentially the rest of the season. Yeah, this is just devastating news. Oscar Lindblom, if you talk to anybody who's been around the Flyers, around Team Sweden, just talks about what a terrific person he is off the ice. He's just 23 years old. So it's really wonderful to see the fans in Philadelphia rally behind him. I know the Flyers organization is going to give him the best support they can. And we just have to have best wishes and positivity at this moment. Um, and, and best of luck in his healing. Indeed. And then Dateline Calgary. A sad one too. Chris Snow, uh, front of the show, uh, diagnosed with ALS. Now his his wife uh, Kelsey put a letter up on the Calgary Flames website, and apparently after this diagnosis, uh, Chris entered a pilot program for some pretty revolutionary ge- revolutionary gene therapy uh, to try to halt the disease. And the early returns, in in some blessed news, uh, appear pretty good. So a lot of optimism from the Snow family in that letter, uh, but obviously uh, hoping the best uh, for Chris Snow. For those who don't know, Chris Snow is a pretty remarkable story. He used to be a beat writer um, for the Minneapolis Star Tribune covering the Minnesota Wild and for the Boston Globe covering the Boston Red Sox. Made the transition from uh, journalist to front office guy for the Wild with a specialty in uh, analytics, was a real pioneer in that field. And worked his way all the way up uh, over the years, uh, 12 or so years in the NHL, to become assistant general manager uh, for the Calgary Flames. Yeah, I have a lot of mutual friends with Chris Snow from his time at Syracuse University and also, you know, in the sports writing world. And anybody who knows him just talks about what a gem of a human being he is. Uh, it was a beautiful letter that his wife, uh, Kelsey, wrote that was posted on the Calgary Flames website. And there was one sentence that just stuck out to me. She said, someone has to be the first person to live with ALS rather than die from it. And one thing I've always known about Chris is that he finds a way. So wishing all the best for Chris in his recovery. And, you know, that letter is just filled with glimmers of hope and positivity. And I know he's going to crush any treatment that comes his way. And I can't wait to keep rooting for him. Dateline beer. Switching gears completely. Uh, tailgate activities will now be permitted in the pre-purchase parking lots only at the Winter Classic at the Cotton Bowl from the time parking lots open until puck drop only, approximately 12.30 p.m. Central Time. Uh, there was a lot of shock and awe that there was not going to be tailgating allowed at the Winter Classic, a.k.a. the reason you go to the Winter Classic. Greg, I have to say... Firstly, I was shocked by the fact that the NHL thought that on the biggest hangover day of the year in the United States, they could host a hockey game in Texas at the Cotton Bowl and tell people not to drink. Like, that is wild to me. <laughs> yeah, in Texas, as, as mentioned. Uh, finally, Dateline of the Mall. It's the last minute, Emily. You're headed to a holiday party. Maybe you're headed to hang out with family. You need a gift. What store in the mall are you running into to grab something for family? You know, this is a cheap answer. And look, I love malls as much as anybody. I, like you, are from the great state of New Jersey where we're the capital of malls. But I also like supporting small business. And there's a store in Chicago that now has become my go-to. It's called Judy Maxwell Home. And the best fun fact I've learned about it, it's one of those kitschy stores you can get anybody, anything, you know, kind of weird, random presents. 
It's owned by Joan Cusack. Uh, actually, I found that out because there was paintings on the wall that were by John Cusack. John Cusack original. So I haven't bought anyone that yet, but that is now my new go-to place. Um, I would go either um, – well, first of all, to kind of play off your idea, I would definitely go to the As Seen on TV store in the mall. Have you seen those? Because uh, they always have incredible kitchen gadgets and stuff for people that want to, I don't know – remove the pit from an avocado without cutting it or some such. Uh, the other thing I'd say is, and uh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show before, kind of a Yankee candle freak. Not to buy them necessarily. I just go in and smell them all. Um, but if I needed to, in a pinch, yeah, if I needed to, in a pinch, get a present for somebody, let's, let's say I'm going to my aunt's house or something and, oh, you got to eat her Christmas present. Well, she's probably getting something that smells like cookies to burn in her house. Greg, I actually believe that a candle is the perfect gift because my definition of a perfect gift is something that you want, but you wouldn't necessarily buy yourself. And I always feel guilty when I spend $20 on a hard wax. I think that's really weird, but I do really enjoy candles. So yeah, candles is the perfect gift. All right. Now it's time for the rant line. Yeah. After uh, Drew Daddy's comments about, uh, you know, fighting belonging in the game and needing to be there, it's really... Uh, Puts a little uh, extra heat on top of uh, what's annoying the, the hell out of me here. Every time you watch a, a, a Devils game on MSG and there's a, there's a scrum in front of the net, the camera cuts to the bench, and I got to look at John Hines and everybody else, or what was John Hines and everybody else, looking down the ice at what's going on in front of the, the net, and I can't watch. This is ridiculous. It's not even it's not even a fight. It's nothing that's over the line. A couple guys pushing around. We should be able to see what's going on. It, it, it's, it's unbelievable. You don't need to get violent out of the game that much. Show us what's going on in the scrums in front of the net. Show us what's going on behind the play. It, we, we need a representation of the game, not uh, uh, what what we'd like to see on the, bed, uh, the benches and the coaches. It's ridiculous. Oh, man, that was good stuff. Good stuff indeed. Maybe not, you know, the most holiday-centric one, but good stuff nonetheless. All right. That is ESPN and Ice for this week. Our thanks to Rob Paulson for joining us. Our thanks to Ryan for some ace production. Um, our thanks to you for listening. We have one more episode to go this year in the year of, uh, 2019. And it be the top 10 stories of the year that'll come out right after Christmas. And so, uh, happy holidays to everybody out there from me. Um, you can find me at Wyshynski on Twitter. You can find all my writing at ESPN.com. By the time this thing drops or just after this thing drops, there is a list you'll want to be checking out on Thursday. That is uh, awesome sauce and epic. All, that's all I'll say about that. Yep. I'm at Emily M. Kaplan. All my stuff's on ESPN.com. We're winding Thank down you. a bit for the holidays, but I am really excited. I had a great conversation with Nathan McKinnon this week. Uh, that column will be up Monday on ESPN.com. And just want to wish you guys a happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and most importantly, Happy Festivus. Bye. Bye. Ben ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.